0: Hello, everyone. Hello, my name's Susan Cole.
1: And I'm uh, Matthew Hodgson.
0: And welcome to AIDS Map Chat, the podcast, our weekly show where we'll be chatting to guests from around the world about issues around HIV and COVID.
1: We have uh, the epi- an epidemiologist and the- an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, who is Julia Marcus. She has recently written a wonderful article which is talking about how we prepare to deal with COVID on a long-term basis, recognising that our lives may be different and that maybe some of the restrictions, which we're currently just about able to manage, we're not going to be able to manage if we have to carry on doing it for months and months. So that's going to be a really interesting conversation. We've also got Winifred I- Ikolai from Uganda. She works with the AIDS Vaccine Advocacy Coalition. Um, and you may be aware that on Monday... It was the International HIV Vaccine Awareness Day. I think I've got that right. So it'll be really interesting to talk to her about all of that. And we also have uh, the amazing Shannon Hader, who is the Deputy Executive Director of UNAIDS. Uh, so she is obviously incredibly busy right now because we're seeing with stories from around the world how uh, covid is affecting people living with hiv and the additional pressures that it's putting on uh, health systems um, and unfortunately the, the additional mortality we're seeing as a result so susan talk to me and tell me something let me hear how you sound
0: so matthew has there been anything in the news this week that struck you
1: well i think um A big story which we featured on uh, AIDS map this week has been about uh, a new trial of injectable prep. Now, this has been kind of it's been in the pipeline for a while. In fact, we ran a story uh, just last year uh, about um, injectable treatment and acknowledging that could also act as PrEP. And there's a study, HPTN-083, there you go, um, which uh, they actually closed the study early because they had two wings in the study. One wing was uh, people uh, who were um, receiving the injection and a placebo pill, and the other people were receiving a placebo injection and the actual pill. And the people who received the injection uh had much lower or considerably lower rates of HIV acquisition. So it's really exciting news. Now some people are saying, well what's what's the point? Because we know that PrEP as a pill works really well and that is true. But we still have challenges with adherence. And we also reported uh on AIDS map this week. Excellent site by the way. Um we also reported <laughs> on AIDS Map this week. Um Uh, 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 about uh, people who there was a study uh, of people in the US who were on PrEP, stopped PrEP for a variety of reasons and then went on to acquire HIV. And some of those reasons may be about adherence or maybe about ability to continue to access uh, PrEP. So if you have an injection which lasts for two months, that's going to be, it's going to be much simpler for some people. Um, And it is an injection in the butt Um, And there may be some soreness involved. Um, So, you know, I'm not saying this is like it's going to be the solution which everyone chooses. But I was I'm always good for options, good good options. And it's a big study as well. It's Four thousand six hundred people, gay men, bisexual men and transgender women.
0: Absolutely. And it's a it's a really exciting study. Um, Obviously, um, I'm really keen to hear about injectable PrEP for women, but I know that there's a, a study, HPTN 084. Um, oh, you that's said happening. that so
1: smoothly. It's it, 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 it like a <laughs> like a tongue. So what does HPTN stand, stand for, Susan?
0: Well, just let, let's just move on from there. But I know that that study has um, 3,000 women in, in Africa, and they're looking to see if that's going to work. So uh, fingers crossed, we should get the data Um, within the next few months for that
1: yeah that's going to be really it's going to be really interesting and and I think often for perhaps particularly for women that sometimes there's real concern around taking pill form of PrEP because it can, can be not very discreet and if you're in a relationship where it may be difficult to disclose to your partner that you're taking PrEP because it may suggest for example, that you don't trust your partner to be monogamous with you. Um, and that's may be something that's going really help a lot of women. so i'm I'm really excited about that.
0: So, absolutely.
1: So talking amazing. about
0: a lot of women, I think that we have got a lot of amazing women <laughs> coming on the show
1: this week. Such a great segue. I mean that's incredible. <laughs> so, so good, so good. No one know's seamless. <laughs> so who's our first guest then?
0: Julia Marcus from Harvard Medical School.
1: So great to have you on the show, Julia.
0: Thanks
1: for having me. Um, So, I mean, I I wanted to invite you on because I read this article, which was, was it in The Atlantic, was it? Was Mm -hmm. it published? And, And I thought, this is so important right now. And I guess I felt that because as a gay man, and I remember when HIV kind of first hit us and... The kind of discussions that people were having, and initially the kind of the advice was, well, if you're a gay man, stop having sex, which was never an option I considered very seriously, to be honest. Um, and I think it was that kind of partly of added as a thing of, you know, well, this is only a temporary measure. And at the time, when certainly in the UK, the government was much less sympathetic towards LGBTQ people, um, the idea that gay men wouldn't have sex—I don't think they were particularly concerned about that. Um, it's, it's becoming increasingly apparent that we're going to see restrictions on the way that we're able to interact with each other as a result of COVID for quite some time yet. So how do you think we should be building our resilience now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we've been doing made a lot of sense for the last couple of months. And early March, there was this message kind of globally to stay home. And Uh, We all thought, you know, okay, it'll be a few weeks and we can do this. Um, And now it's becoming clear that this is something we're going to have to sustain for many more months, if not years until we have a vaccine or um, a preventive medication. So I think now we need to be thinking about sustainability. And I think we can all agree, just like you're um, talking about with the early days of AIDS, that we can't stay in our our houses until there's a vaccine. So we have to find ways to engage in our lives, not the way we did before, but um, a new normal that allows us to have some some semblance of joy and um, and pleasure without. Um, you know, vastly increased risk of coronavirus transmission. So we we really need to be looking for those low-risk activities that allow us to live our lives in a sustainable way. Brilliant. I I saw saw your
0: absolutely brilliant infographic about the spectrum of of risk. Can you share some of the tips?
2: Yeah, I mean, the idea is instead of uh, an approach where we think about staying home versus going back to life the way it was, um, we think about um, a whole spectrum of risk. What what's the gray area? What's the middle ground? And if we think about it from uh, if we make go back to that analogy of the early days of HIV, it's um, it's like shifting from abstinence only messaging to safer sex education. So what are the ways that we actually can engage in this activity but keep our risk low? Um, and if we think about a spectrum of risk for from what we know about COVID 19, um. Obviously, staying at home is going to be our safest option, but that's not something we can all do forever. We may be doing much more of it than we normally would, um, but we need to think about ways that we can be outdoors. Um, we know that being outdoors is um, lower risk than being in a crowded indoor setting um, with people outside of our household. So, um, and also thinking about um, harm reduction strategies for every scenario, like keeping six feet of distance wherever you can and wearing a mask and keeping hands clean, kind of all those same messages that we've been getting, but with a bit more nuance that gives us a sense of, um, you know, not just staying home, but, but other things we can do that are relatively low risk.
1: Yeah. I, I guess one of the things that I've really noticed is, you know, you see kind of real invective against people who are like breaking the rules. And, and I think that's, that's, I understand that and I get that because I think everyone is going through a bit of stress. And for some people, actually kind of shaking their fist at people who don't seem to be following the rules which they might want to follow is actually also a way of releasing their tension. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also know how abstinence programs worked, um, in in a variety (laughs) of different settings. And when I kind of paused before I said worked, it's because we know that ultimately they didn't work well. And in fact, what happened if when the abstinent message was preached often it led to people not really having any understanding of how to reduce harm or risk if they then did engage in an activity and that's what we saw.
2: Exactly and and the shaming that you bring up is also not an effective strategy and if we um, think about what still goes on today with shaming of let's say condomless sex the result is that people won't disclose to their provider that that's something that they're doing and then their healthcare provider doesn't know what kind of care that person needs and it ends up actually backfiring and we end up with worse health outcomes. And if we kind of think about how that would work today, you could imagine if people who are getting together in a park having a picnic are shamed, they may take that indoors and it may become a crowded indoor dinner party where it's actually higher risk than if they'd stayed outdoors or you know, if, if there is an outbreak and contact tracers are looking Um, For people who may have been exposed, people may be afraid to say I was at that event because they're afraid of um, being stigmatized for doing that. And so I I think even though shaming is uh, a natural instinct for some and and it's understandable right now with high levels of anxiety and, and anger, which is all justifiable, I think we need to remember that it doesn't usually have the effect that we want it to have. Thank you. Brilliant.
1: It's so great to have you on the show. Um and um and I look forward to meeting you when at some point when we are able to um you move too. around a bit more. Thank okay. you okay.
0: so Bye. much, Julie. Thank, Thank you for having
1: me. Bye. Can you believe it is the last show? And I don't know, it, it, it's it's weird because it, this has been such a trip for me, to be honest. Um and it's it's become something which is kind of quite different from what I first expected it to be. And I guess I think for me, uh, it has really felt like it's been about communities. And, you know, what I've felt doing this show and with all the people I've spoken to is I have felt a really strong sense of being part of an international community of people living with HIV. And I've also felt really just blown away and incredibly moved by some of the examples we've heard about community responses how people are literally getting on their bicycles to make sure that people have access to treatment uh, you know around the world and that has been you know just oh, well it's been a really moving part of the process of me <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, it's been absolutely incredible. And I think in relation to the community response, I believe this is a perfect segue to bring in an extraordinary representative from the community,
2: who is...
1: Hi, <laughs> it's Winifred.
3: Hi, Matthew. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? Oh, we're really break. good.
0: <laughs> um, Winifred, thank you so much for coming on. Um, What's been the community response in Uganda?
3: Um, thank you so much. So, we, we first um, uh, registered a COVID case uh, on 31st March. And from then, uh, we had a lot of challenges as people living with HIV because, um, one, the lockdown measures uh, which were imposed by His Excellency affected the, the, the quality and access to treatment. So, people found it quite challenging to walk to the health facilities. Um, to access treatment because of the long distance. And also we've had so many challenges around sexual and gender-based violence due to the lockdown. So communities have really played a, a great role in, in ensuring that people living with HIV access um, treatment. Uh, we've had networks of people living with HIV. We have, we've had expert clients being able to deliver drugs uh, to people out there in the community. Uh, but also, we've been able to to advocate and engage um, the Minister of Health through the PLHIV COVID response team to ensure uninterrupted access to treatment. I think you saw so many uh, photos of young men riding bicycles to deliver <laughs> drugs to, to the community. Yes, fantastic. It has been fantastic. Now. I, I,
1: I do want to talk with you, Winifred, about uh, vaccines, because uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Monday was International HIV Vaccine Awareness Day. Um, And, you know, because of what I do, I, I, I hear a lot of stories. I hear a lot of frustration about how long it's taken to get. Well, we haven't got an HIV vaccine. We're still exploring avenues. And, of course, you know, we're, you know, Forty years into the epidemic now, um, and and I guess this also makes me concerned about when a vaccine does, we hope, materialise for COVID. How will we roll it out? I mean, do do you do, do you think do you think that the challenge we've had in getting a res, a vaccine for HIV is it because not enough resources being put into it? or is it because it's really difficult?
3: First of all, we must understand that um, HIV mutates, it keeps changing shape. I, I usually call it a moving target. Mm. So because it keeps changing shape, um, it becomes difficult uh, for the antibodies to, to infuse and, uh, and neutralize to neutralize the, the, the virus, unlike other diseases. So we find it quite challenging uh, because HIV has different subtypes and has taken quite long to, to, to to deliver um, a vaccine trial because of such challenges, and also maybe to 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 add on that, uh, it is quite challenging to also find an effective way of, of of delivering HIV proteins into the body in a way that the immune system will respond will respond without necessarily causing HIV. So that is the the biggest challenge with getting an HIV vaccine. The HIV mutates, and a lot of Trials are happening right now. We have the ARM study that is happening, that is trying to test whether uh, neutralizing um, antibodies can can mitigate uh, uh, HIV infection. But we, we cannot lose hope uh, because of that. We shall keep trying to see that. Um, so many trials are supported. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um. Obviously, in in relation to uh, a COVID vaccine, um, if and when we do actually get one, I think it's hugely important that it's made available to everyone in the world, regardless of where they live. What do we do right now to make that a reality, do you think?
3: Um, Right now, you also must appreciate that uh, with COVID-19 vaccine development, that process is really moving on so fast. because you are borrowing from the scientific knowledge that has been generated from HIV vaccine research. So to ensure that people access the vaccine uh, equitably, one, we must we must ensure that um, uh, we have enough uh, manufacturing plants in place, enough vaccine should be manufactured, so that all people are able to access it. And we should also be asking ourselves the, the question of, of the cold chain, supply management. How are we going to ensure that uh, different countries right now affected by COVID-19 are able to access uh, the much needed vaccine? Um, In addition, we must also ensure that we involve the community. Community engagement is key in planning and and delivery of a safe and effective vaccine. One, we must empower people and also ensure this uh, social mobilization, people to demand uh, in the light of, 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 of resources. I, I would love to borrow the, the, the GPP principle from HIV vaccine trials, where communities have been involved, uh, HIV uh, vaccine platforms, to ensure a safe and inclusive um, vaccine in, is delivered, but also the, the great collaboration and partnerships by the different uh, uh, manufacturers and, and trial networks. So I think that should really be put into consideration delivery and and the manufacturing process
1: yes Ah, brilliant it's 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 such a such a concern isn't it I mean you kind of well I mean I guess it's also such a concern that we don't know when or if a vaccine will be available but we do know that history tells us that it's Getting the technology is one thing. Getting it implemented, getting it out there is a different thing altogether. And it's really vital that we make sure that everyone benefits. So, Winifred, thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thank you thank so you. much, Winifred. Take thank care. You, Susan, and it was awesome connecting with you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
3: uh,
1: yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we started doing this show because we felt that it was really important to provide information about uh COVID particularly for people living with HIV we were recognized that there were a lot of questions and that there were new challenges being posed by COVID we have got a bit more data has come in uh, since last week um looking mm-hmm. at uh COVID amongst people living with HIV or looking at HIV positive people amongst those who have been hospitalized for COVID we're still yeah. not seeing um Anything which gives us anything which really says that people with HIV are more likely to acquire COVID, or are more likely to have severe impacts. But there was some data around uh, bacterial pneumonia, and people right. with HIV being more likely to die with bacterial pneumonia and COVID than people who weren't HIV positive. And it's it's still very early days. I guess this does tell us. Well, the things it tells us is we recognise that. It's an evolving situation. We're not going to see dramatic increase in risk for people with HIV because we've got enough data now that we know that that isn't the case. We may see some slight differences as we get more data in and understand it better. And it does also underline the importance of ensuring that good medical records are kept so that we can see whether there are differences for people living with HIV than there are for other people. Because we know we know as a result of COVID, we're going to see steep increases in excess mortality, you know, in every mm. region that's been affected by it. And it will be deaths from AIDS. It will be deaths from TB. It will be deaths from malaria, often among people who are uninfected with COVID uh, mm-hmm. as a result of the strain placed in the healthcare system. So. Yeah,
0: that's very sobering. But if only we had someone from... Uh you
1: Who a great queen this week aren't you I mean <laughs> who do we have
0: we had
1: the <sighs> <laughs> ah.
0: deputy <clears throat> executive director of UNAIDS, as if by magic
1: so so hi Shannon, hi, hi, Shannon. so okay, thank everybody. you very so much for joining us um yeah I mean thank you so so we were talking about kind of excess mortality as a result of of, of AIDS and, and malaria and TB and you know, because of your role at UNAIDS, you're going to be responsible, not for the excess mortality, but for addressing that, that challenge. Um, so what, what what is UNAIDS doing about this?
4: Yeah, you know, a few things. Uh, I think one of the first things we did was say, well, what would be the cost of inaction? Like, what happens if we just put everything on hold while we're responding to COVID and then pick it up later? And... We worked with WHO and uh, the HIV modeling consortium about five big HIV modellers, and you know looked at okay, if if all HIV treatment services, for example, were put on hold for six months, were just discontinued for six months. Uh, now it's our job to make sure that doesn't happen, right? But if that happened, what would be the cost? Cost in terms of human lives, and uh, the models showed that in sub-Saharan Africa alone that could result in an extra 500,000 deaths this year alone. That doubles the number of deaths that we had from last year. And it takes us back to 2008 levels of deaths. So I think you know this is just a quantitative reminder of we must have the political will to continue HIV services while we are responding to COVID. These should not be seen in competition and we've just got to make it happen. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, thank so you. So one A- of the things that we're doing about that is, you know, we reached out as UNAIDS and worked with our networks, uh, networks of people living with HIV and at risk for HIV and said, you know, what do you need? What do you feel like you need? Whether it is information on COVID, uh prevention uh uh resources for COVID, uh HIV treatment. And the number one thing from networks around the world that came in consistently as most important is I'm really afraid I'm going to run out of my ARVs. I'm going to run out of my HIV treatment meds. I am fearful that I will have a treatment interruption. So that's a lot of what we've been working with partners to really focus on making sure it doesn't happen.
0: Yeah. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for all you do. I and mean, we've learned some really important lessons um, in the HIV response. Which of those lessons do you think are relevant to move forward and um, when we um, tackle mm-hmm. the COVID epidemic?
4: Yeah, you know, so many. And I think uh, you've been t- touching on some of them throughout today already. So maybe I'll just pick maybe three. Um, I think three things from the HIV response that are absolutely fundamental to a successful COVID response. Um, one is an effective public health response is also a human rights-based public health response. Um, second is you've got to have communities in the lead, and by communities, we mean nothing about us without us. You know, communities of affected people for affected people. Um, and third, you know, just like HIV is a virus, but it's and it's a health condition, but it's never been only about health. COVID is a virus, but the response is not gonna be just about health. So maybe, you know, starting from the top, you know, we hear a lot uh, under COVID, it's like, oh, there has to be a trade-off between the public health response and the restrictions and human rights, and people just have to expect that. It's like, well, no, you can have restrictions that are still grounded in human rights and gender sensitivity. We know this. And in fact, we know from the HIV response, If you don't, you will never get the end of your epidemic because if your restrictions are draconian, if they're not flexible, if they're not evidence-based, if they're not time-limited, if they're not appropriate, you will push people into hiding and not get the cooperation and collaboration you need. When it comes to community-led organizations and leaders being in the response, we know this is a matter of being at the governance tables and the planning tables. We know it's about helping deliver direct services to people who need them most. And we know it's about community monitoring, uh, being able to hold providers and the government accountable for delivering on their promises to the people. Um, and in COVID, you know, we're starting to see uh, that engagement of community-led organizations in some of the service delivery. Um, we talked about preventing treatment eruption. We are seeing community-led HIV organizations around the world really step up to help make sure that people get their drugs. But what we're not seeing yet in COVID, despite the fact, I can tell and AIDS, we're fighting for this in every country, is the incorporation of community leaders at the governance table, at the decision and planning table. And that's just got to move. And then I think finally, um, gosh, you know, we know all about the non-health aspects of HIV. We know about stigma and discrimination. We know how disparities, uh, social disparities, economic disparities, uh, gender disparities, safety disparities that show up in gender-based and other violence, how those totally impact and limit the effectiveness of a response as well. So as the COVID response continues to go forward, it's not an option not to address these social and economic disparities. And I think you touched on this with the last question about access to a vaccine, right? Right. Same thing when we talk about access uh, to the right test at the right time. Access to treatment, should it become available? Access to a vaccine, should it become available? It can't be a matter of rich countries, rich people are first in line and everybody else is behind. It's got to be priority based on need. You know, healthcare workers everywhere. We've got to put it at the front of the queue for these things. And then people who are most vulnerable, most at risk.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Shannon, it's been fantastic to have you on. I'm so, so much of what you said then it was, it, it, it was, it was just resonating. And I think, again, it's about, well, I, I guess, what, one we're talking about kind of the communities which suffer worst in any epidemic, in any pandemic, and it's those communities that are most marginalised. So we need to make sure that any solutions we find work for everybody. It's about that human rights approach. And as a queer man, you know, I've been horrified by some of the reports that we've received from you know from Hungary, from from uh, Uganda. Uh, so. I'm just really glad that, you know, it seems that UNAIDS are really focusing really smartly um, and I'm really grateful to have you as a colleague, so thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. Take care. Wow.
1: That's That's it. That's our last guest.
0: Oh my goodness, that's the last, our last guest and the end of the show. I think we've actually, we've we've run out of time. So that's the end of the show for now. But I do hope that we will be coming back. But before we go, I would like to say a huge thank you to our our wonderful guests.
1: Um, and, and thanks to, I mean, all the amazing guests this week, uh, to Winifred and Shannon and Julia, and to all the incredible guests that we've had on throughout the whole show. Um, I, w- I was actually planning on listing them all, but we we're running out of time. So we we can't, really have
0: run out of time. We really
1: have run out of time. So it's been a joy to do this show. It's been a real eye-opener. Um, it's been lovely to work with you, Susan. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, uh, so so we, we we hope that we will come back in 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 some format um obviously it's really interesting what's been really encouraging about doing this has been uh, the level of response we've received from all over the world and people seem to uh like it so i guess that's it signing off
0: i guess that's it so thank you all so much and hopefully we will see you soon Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Take care
1: of yourself. Bye. Thank you for listening to AIDS Map Chat, the podcast. Please do rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts via Apple, Acast, iTunes or Spotify.